Hello, welcome back to Clarity. Clarity is our one-year journey as a church where we just want to see Jesus more clearly. And I'm Garland. I'm Michael. And we, I mean, today, I'm just going to beg you, go with us here. We're going to look at something that is, to me, so cool and so compelling. You can already, I'm already I'm already freaking out about it, and we've got to get a little bit nerdy. And so uh, we want you to go here with us. Uh, this would be a great one to to sit down with your Bible open and and walk through these passages uh, with us. And so uh, if you if you're into this kind of thing or not, go here, get your Bible, and we're gonna get we're gonna look at some prophecy. Uh, where we're at in our Clarity series is we see Jesus go into Jerusalem. In fact, Luke has been telling the story of a journey that Jesus has been on to Jerusalem the whole way through from chapter 9 verse 51 all the way to chapter 19. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And here we get, we're going to zoom and slow way down in our Luke journey and zoom in really close on this Jerusalem entry. Here comes Jesus the Messiah to Jerusalem. And that that brings up for us just a really interesting thing we have to we have to look at. When when we see Jesus going into Jerusalem as Christians you know, 2,000 years later, we go, yes, of course, this is the triumphal entry. Here comes Jesus. He's the Messiah and all that. But in the ancient culture, in the first century world, the Jewish world living under Roman rule, what we're going to see is this is something that they're looking for as a people. They've been looking for this for hundreds of years. They're looking for this, this Hebrew word, Mashiach, or we get our word Messiah. They're anxious for it. They're looking for it. And that somewhat explains the reaction of the crowd and so what we want to do is we want to get back to what they're looking for and kind of see where this came from, and it's so cool. So, Michael, help us out here. What are we doing? Yeah, so the reader of Luke, a first-century reader, especially if they were Jewish, they should have drawn a straight line from Luke's description to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And most of us, when we think of Daniel, we think of two things. We think of uh, the three guys in the fiery furnace, right. and we think of the lion's den. Right. Those were our Sunday school mm-hmm. stories. Mm-hmm. Um, those are in our children's Bibles. But the book of Daniel actually has two parts. The first six chapters are virtually all narrative. And the last six chapters, seven through 12, are virtually all prophetic visions. Right. And it's really interesting because um, Daniel is quoted by New Testament prophecy more than any other book. So when we look at prophecies in the New Testament, especially in Revelation, a lot of it is drawn straight from Daniel. And Daniel has more fulfilled prophecies than any other book. So when we look back at Daniel, we see lots of things that Daniel had visions of, things that were prophesied that have actually already occurred in the course of world events. So... Who's Daniel? Yeah, What's going so who's on? Daniel? Yeah. Daniel uh, was a nobleman, so to speak. He was a leader, a young leader in Judah, which was the southern kingdom of the split nation of Israel and Judah, uh, when Judah fell. And so Babylon, as had been prophesied and predicted, conquered Judah, and their leaders, including Daniel, were taken into captivity. And so as a young man, Daniel was taken to the capital of the Babylonian Empire, and because he was uh, gifted by the Lord and had this gift of being able to understand and interpret dreams and prophecies, he quickly rose to a prominent position. Uh, he stayed there through into his adult life, even through the conquering of Babylon by the Medo-Persian Empire. Uh, Daniel maintained his position, and so he was in the court of a conquering nation faithfully serving Yahweh, uh, the God of Israel. He probably lived to be 85 years old or more 
And this book that he recorded um, is really a touchstone for us in the New Testament era to understand um, how the prophecies of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. So just just because for me, I always, this is always helpful for me, like the Bible isn't mythology, right? It's not talking about a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, and it sets it in some place that's fictional. We're talking about real people that lived in real places. So like the events that are taking place in Daniel, we're talking 6th century BC. So 500s BC. And we can go verify Babylon and Medo-Persia and all this stuff. And the Bible is not afraid to place itself in real history. So we have this character, Daniel, he goes through this horrific experience called a foreign government comes in, conquers and, and carries them off into their, into this foreign territory. And he's trying to figure out life uh, in living kind of in hostile foreign territory. And one of the things we see about Daniel that makes him so compelling is he's continuing to worship his creator, God, the God that we serve, and he's continuing to read his Bible. Mm-hmm. And so reading the Bible specifically the prophecies of Jeremiah are what leads Daniel to some of the actions he takes and the prayers he prays in the book. Right. So when we when we get to, we're going to get to chapter 9. Do uh, you want me to set up what's kind of going on before? That'd be great. Okay. So if you look at the book of Daniel, like Michael said, there's a lot of narrative in the first six chapters. And then there's a lot of prophecy in the second half. Now, tucked into the narratives and into the prophecy, we're going to see a very similar vision take place. But but it looks differently, but a similar idea in chapter two and chapter seven. And just to summarize it really quickly, what Daniel sees in this vision, and he's going he's gonna to interpret a dream uh, that the king sees in chapter two, but essentially what, we, what we're talking about is Daniel receives vision about world empires that are going to rule and reign in the Middle East, the ancient Near Eastern world, including rule and reign over his homeland of Israel. And these world empires are going to be four. There's going to be four of these things. And in chapter two, they're called beasts. There's different different descriptions of these beasts. In chapter two, they're a statue. In Daniel seven, they're a beast. I I got my mind backwards there. Two, it's a statue. Seven, it's four beasts. And what we see take place is these four world empires will come and a fifth shows up in both these different visions. And this fifth one is some kind of supernatural uh, God kingdom that comes. And it's actually in Daniel 7 where we get this, this idea that Jesus will love to quote about himself of this son of man figure who is given dominion and power in a kingdom coming and sitting on the throne of the Ancient of Days or Yahweh. And so uh, Jesus loves to refer to himself as that figure in Daniel 7. That's a whole other podcast. We don't have time to go into it now. So here are these four world empires that are going to show up, and they're going to rule and reign seemingly for longer than Daniel is expecting. Uh, so it's Babylon. That's, that's bad. And then here comes the Persian Empire. Okay, that's bad. Now what? And it seems like there's going to be more empires to follow. We're going to look back historically and know it's going to be Greece and then Rome. It, just for me, as, a, as going through the U of A for my studies uh, of undergrad, I had a professor say that there's no way that Daniel could have been written in the 500s because it's so accurate about what it predicts that there's no way that it could have been written, had to be written later. And it just, that begins a whole conversation about what, what is the nature of prophecy and God and his revelation. Uh, but that's how, that's how dead on some of this is, which we're going to pick back up here in a minute. So that's what's going on, gone on before in Daniel. And then we get to chapter nine. Yeah. So in Daniel nine, he's reading the prophet Jeremiah. 
And uh, he reads Jeremiah in our Bibles. It's chapter 29, beginning in verse 12, um, where God says, um, if you pray, I will heal you. And he goes on and he reads in Jeremiah, the exile is going to last 70 years. And so Daniel feels motivated to pray this prayer of confession. And he confesses on behalf of the nation of Israel. And I think it's really interesting. uh, At the end of his prayer in Daniel 9, 18, he says, we don't present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. And so Daniel is calling on God based on God's character to keep his promise that the exile is only going to last 70 years. So just to, just to make sure I'm hearing this right, we have Daniel. He's got a scroll of Jeremiah. And by the way, this is Jeremiah 29, which is where Jeremiah is talking, one of our famous verses, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. And it seems as if there's this promise that God has made that after 70 years, I'm going to bring you back from exile. And we've noted in other, in other podcasts as we've, as we've thought about this concept, there's a pattern of sevens all over the Old Testament. Seven is this concept of completeness or wholeness. And so a seven-day week, there's a seven festivals of the year. On the seventh year, the, the debts are forgiven. On the seven times 70th year, that's the Jubilee year where all is forgiven and all, all those that are in bondage are set free. This pattern is all over the Old Testament. It's almost as if God is saying, for 70 years, a completeness, I have to complete what you have disregarded in your history. But when that completion is up, I'll bring you back. And Daniel's reading this going, this has got to be soon. Surely. Is that, is that what I'm making of this? Yeah, okay, I, think, okay. I think he's 67 years into the exile okay. at this point. So he's looking going, it's almost up. It's almost time. Okay. And he's praying. And the, then, by the way, this prayer is fantastic. It's, uh, it's worth an entire study yeah. uh, by itself. What does a godly person do? What does it look like to pray when you look at a culture around you that doesn't seem to care about Yahweh at all? It's yeah. just a really cool prayer. And not to go too far down that path, but in the prayer, I noticed that it's all plural. It's we have right, sinned. Right. We um, we have not kept our mm-hmm. our part of the covenant, and so it's not as much an individual confession of sin, which all of us should be doing. Uh, but Daniel's confessing on behalf of the nation um, right. and calling on God to remember His faithfulness to keep His promise. And while he's praying, something very supernatural happens that has never happened to me. I don't know about you, Garland, <laughs> uh, but the angel Gabriel shows up and he actually says, be, "As soon as you started praying." A word went out, and I was sent to tell it to you because you're greatly loved. And Angels don't show up when you pray? Uh, not I, normally. You must not have the kind of prayer life that I have. I got Gabriel <laughs> showed up every week, but I pray. No, that has not been my normative experience. Right. Uh, but I do love it that um, the responsiveness from the heavenly throne room that we see here as soon as Daniel prays, God responds and sends an angel because Daniel is greatly loved. Right. And so he reveals something that Daniel did not know before. Okay. So here comes the angel, and to keep our pattern of sevens going, and we're going to, by the way, Jesus will do this exact same thing when Peter asks him about forgiveness. How much should I forgive? Seven. And Jesus goes, no, no, 70 times seven. It's a, it's a, it's a rhetorical device that uh, Hebrew people use frequently. It's based on this pattern of seven. And before we look at it, what we're going to hear is essentially, it sounds like the angel goes, hey, it's actually going to be, a diff- the exile is going to be a little bit different now. It's going to be a 70 times seven Exile. So help us make sense of this because this was supposed to be cool. What's what's happening here? Yeah, well, let me read it for okay. us, and then we'll unpack it a little gotcha. bit. So Gabriel says to Daniel, "I'm beginning in Daniel chapter nine, verse twenty-four. Seventy weeks 
We're going to unpack that word weeks. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. That sounds awesome. That sounds like a lot of good stuff. He says, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Okay, so it's some really good stuff. And then we have this anointed one, which is this, that's the, what the Messiah means. But then he has, okay, this is 500 years in advance. Help me wrap my mind around it. Yeah, so we have the benefit of hindsight. Uh, but when he says 70 weeks, that word that's translated weeks in almost all of our English Bibles actually means sequence of seven. And okay. so as you alluded to earlier, he basically says 70 sevens. Are decreed. And I think Daniel has already been reading about the 70 years in Jeremiah. So I think it would have been natural for Daniel to receive this as 70 sets of seven years. Okay. So he's really talking about 490 years. But then the angel says, um, but that's actually going to be broken down. Um, seven sevens, 49 years, 62 sevens, for a total of 69 sevens. Uh, Gone. You do the math in your head real quick. I'm Sixty-two seven. Not a math. Unfortunately, well, yeah. I have my you long division it, oh, you here. You wrote it down. Yeah. Yes, I use my number two pencil. Nice, nice. That's four hundred thirty-four. A total of four hundred eighty-three years. Okay. So, the prophecy says, after the decree goes out, there will be four hundred eighty-three years until an anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. And he'll do some really cool stuff. There's a list of really cool things. Holy city, it'll be it'll put it into sin, atone for wickedness, bring in righteousness, seal up vision and prophecy, anoint the holy place, and this anointed one will come and be cut off. Like this is loaded with stuff. So I guess it seems as if we've got like a a marker, like a where's the decree? When you hear the decree, all right, get ready because you can start the clock on this decree. And I guess the question becomes. What's the decree? Right. And so uh, Bible scholars disagree about this. and Of course they do. Of yes, course yes. they do. There's nothing that any of us can agree on. Uh, but if we look, there are really four decrees um, to rebuild Jerusalem um, that are recorded in the Bible. And with the benefit of hindsight, I think we can say that the prophecy is attached to Artaxerxes' decree when he sends Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2, and we know exactly when that decree was made. Because as you said, the Bible is a historical document. It doesn't exist in some sort of never-never land. We know that Artaxerxes declared that Nehemiah could be sent back to begin the process of rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem, which is key. If you're an ancient city with no wall, you're not really a city. You have right. to have a wall. And so on March 4th, 444 B.C., this is in Nehemiah, the first, verse, the first eight verses of Nehemiah 2, uh, March 4th, 444 B.C., the decree is given. Mm -hmm. If we take our 483 years, and a little side note here, um, the, it might immediately seem like, well, that math doesn't really work out. But um, when we're dealing with prophecy, we're dealing with lunar years. 
not solar years. And so a lunar year is generally considered to be 360 days. So if we do that math, 483 lunar years from March 4th, 444 BC, we get the date March 29th, AD 33. Most conservative scholars believe that Jesus was crucified on Friday, April 3rd, AD 33. That means that on Sunday, March 29th, Jesus mounted a foal and entered Jerusalem as the Messiah, as the anointed one, Mm -hmm. ushering in the kingdom era. And we know that that Friday, he would be cut off and have nothing as he was laid in the grave. And that, like, it's almost too good to be true. Like, you hear that, and you're like, that's amazing. Like, that's actually amazing. The specificity of this prophecy is Mm mind-boggling. No one argues that this was written after the time of Christ. Mm -hmm. Even people who argue with Daniel having written this in the 5th century argues that it was written... Before Jesus. Right, right. And so uh, we're confident that Daniel received this vision and wrote this in the 500s BC about something that would occur on this specific date, March 29th, AD 33. And that's what's depicted in the triumphal entry that we're going to study in Luke. So... I mean, I, I, I just think that makes the Old Testament really cool and awesome. It kind of makes me want to read it uh, more than, than oftentimes I do. Is I, th- I get kind of intimidated by it. And so what we have is the Old Testament, and I think this is interesting when we— I hear people say all the time, well, the last note of our Old Testament is the word curse. I hear people say that all the time. And that's that's true in our English Bibles. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the way that the, the books were broken down differently, the last book in the Hebrew Bible is Second Chronicles. And if you think about how Second Chronicles ends, and this is where some of the debate you know, ranges us to uh, what the decree is. But even regardless, look at how Second Chronicles ends. It ends with the, with the decree to rebuild. It's almost as if the Old Testament is ending with an expectation that an anointed one is coming. By the way, a lot of the, uh, the, where they place Daniel in the Old Testament is right before the Chronicles. So you have a, a, a marker, hey, here comes a decree. And then in Chronicles, we get a decree. And we have one in Nehemiah, it's like the, it's like the Old Testament saying, watch for him. Watch for him. And that's why in the first century world that Jesus is, is living in, they're looking for Messiah. They're going, he's, he's coming. He's coming. And the strange thing is all the Messiahs of the first century, there was lots of people that were claiming to be Messiah. They all got crucified. All of them got killed by Rome. They were all seen as insurrectionists who Rome killed. And as soon as the, those anointed ones died, their followers disbanded. Except for this one. And we might say that the reason is this one truly is the Messiah. Why? Because he was resurrected. And in that resurrection, he conquers sin and death. And Jesus, all throughout Luke, knows that this is what he's headed for. And so this is the one who was cut off but raised back to life to seal up vision and prophecy and make atonement for sin. Oh, it's just, I'm, I'm having goosebumps even thinking about this. And so uh, just just kind of put some, some flesh on this in your own life and people that we've talked to as they've seen this illuminated. Yeah, so... 
It does two things for us. One, um, it gives us just a lot of confidence in the Scripture. And right. I hope that as we work our way through this Clarity Series with our daily readings, with our uh, community group and small group discussions, with our sermons that and these podcasts, we see that um, the Bible is extremely trustworthy. It all ties together. And that things that may appear at first glance have nothing to do with each other. Daniel in exile in Babylon, the triumphal entry, they're actually tightly connected written hundreds of years apart by different people in different languages, and yet so interwoven. And so I hope it gives us increased uh, confidence in the Scripture. And the other thing is, I think there are certain people, um, there are, are math people, there are science people, there are people who don't lean into literature, that this really... Uh, triggers something in them. I have a close friend. Um, he was a military guy. He was a scientist, and he was always around the edges of the church and Christianity, uh, but he never really bought in. It never was his thing until someone showed him this, and when he saw that the math makes sense, he realized this has to be true. And that was what the Lord used to bring him to faith in Christ. And so I hope that for people out there who have the math mind, the puzzle mind, um, the people that maybe lean in more to the Sudoku than the crossword puzzle, right, right. Um, that this, this shows them um, that the Bible holds up to that type of scrutiny as well, and that we have a God who invented math. He is very precise, and in this case, I really do believe precise right down to the day. Mm-hmm. Well, as a non-math person, it's awesome. Like, this is just so cool. And so uh, just being able to see that the Bible is telling a story, and it's the story of uh, broken people in desperate need of rescue, and the Bible's a rescue plan that God has been enacting uh, since we broke this whole thing in Genesis 3. And that rescue plan comes to fruition in this anointed one. And the whole story is pointing to him, and that's why we're trying to get this clearer picture of Jesus throughout this year. And so... Uh, I, I think that this is so fascinating. We hope this is helpful and illuminating as we're as we're navigating this series. And uh, thanks for listening to Clarity. Have a good week.